Well, good morning. My name is Dave Dorst. If I haven't met you, I'm the associate pastor here. Um, my main duty is music, and my New Year's resolution this year is to find a, some backup piano players, which makes it your New Year's resolution, because somebody out there plays. Um, when I preach or when I'm out of town, uh, uh, Eli moves over to guitar, and so we need a piano player. Fill in his spot. He's very versatile. Thank you, Eli. Uh, the youth group had a Lord of the Rings marathon at my house during my sermon prep yesterday. <laughs> Twelve hours, all three movies, extended editions. It was a blast. I thought for sure I would work in some illustrations from Lord of the Rings, but I just couldn't shoehorn it in. So if you think of something, tell me afterwards. Or hold up a sign. I don't know. Lots of babies being born. Uh, I hope you saw the email that the, the Bales had their baby yesterday. And the Motmans just recently, uh, I'm going to hopefully get to visit them today or tomorrow. Uh, Frank and I got to visit the Wantrops last week when Isabella, the day after she was born. And I love going and visiting with these families. And every time I visit, either in the hospital or at their homes, I'm just reminded, it's sort of taken back to when we had our children, and which is been a while now with our oldest in double digits and one heading off to college in the fall. But it's, it's beautiful. You watch these moms and dads hold their newborns and I'm just taken back to singing lullabies and veggie tales over my kids at night. Sweet memories. And you know that at the same time that you have these just tender affections for this new bundle of joy, you also have, you feel super protective, right? You would do anything to protect this baby. And children need to know that. They need a mom and dad who are strong enough to keep anyone from hurting them, but tender enough to love them with all their hearts. Today's text is from the book of Zephaniah. Um, our last sermon in the series called Christmas in the Minor Prophets. So it's been a quick study of just a few chapters in various minor prophets. Today in Zephaniah, we are going to see a mighty father singing over his children, assuring them that he loves them and will keep them safe from harm. But before we read the text, I want to ask you a question. Do you believe that God really loves you? Do you believe that the creator of the universe looks at you and says, Wow, I really love her. I really love him. You know your own flaws. You know your sins. We are often our own harshest critic at the same time that we also have to work to keep up the charade, the facade of how great we are, how exhausting that can be. 
And so it comes down to whether we really believe that God loves us or is that just something we read and it's a very surfacey thing. Is the talk about God being loved in the Bible just this like begrudging thing where God says, okay, they've claimed faith, so that kind of forces my hand. I guess I have to love them. Is that what it looks like? Or is it possible that God has genuine, everlasting, unconditional affection and joy toward you and towards me? Rich Mullins, the singer, admitted once that there are many things in the Christian faith that are hard to get a handle on. And one of the things that I struggle the hardest with is believing that God really loves me. It's too good to believe, but it's true, whether I can believe it or not. Well, let's read Zephaniah and see if it will strengthen our belief that God loves us. We're in chapter 3, verses 14 through 20. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. If you don't know where Zephaniah is, get to the Old Testament, New Testament break, go back four chapters. Four books. You're good, sorry. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exalt with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time, I will deal with all your oppressors. And I will save the lame and gather the outcast. And I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in. At the time when I gather you together. For I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth. When I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Almighty, eternal, and merciful God, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our paths. Open and illuminate our minds so that we may purely and perfectly understand your word and that our lives may be conformed to what we have rightly understood. To the praise and glory of Jesus Christ, amen. The name Zephaniah means hidden by God. And it's the key to the book. So who is hidden and from whom are they hiding? Is it God's people hiding from their enemies? Well, we find out in Zephaniah 2.3. 
It says, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do his just commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. God is offering to hide his people from his own anger. From his own judgment. Why is God angry? Well, we've, this is the fourth sermon we've had now from the minor prophets. And we've seen a lot of different reasons for God's anger. It's usually some form of disobedience. Some idolatry. Turning away from their rightful king and lord to false gods. Zephaniah prophesied to Judah which if you remember is the southern part of the kingdom after the nation of Israel split into north and south. Israel was the north, was ten tribes, and had already been judged by God through the Assyrians who had attacked and conquered it. This is 722 B.C. Well, Zephaniah is writing roughly a hundred years later. So imagine reflecting on what happened a hundred years ago. We have some memory, World War I, stock market crashed back then, but it was essentially during the reign of Josiah now is when Zephaniah is writing, and he's the last of Judah's good kings. You can read about him in Second Chronicles 34 and 35, if you remember hopefully some of his, the details of his reign. He starts, he's the, the young king at age eight when he first comes to power. And by age 20, he's tearing down the altars to Baal and attempting to please God. And actually by the age of, I think, 26, they begin repairing the temple. And the workers find the book of the law hidden in the ruins of the temple. And so when King Josiah finds out, he reads it to the people and he tries to follow it. And he institutes all kinds of reforms. But those reforms, this, this mini revival, are not going to be enough. As the people turn away from God and follow the gods and the ways of the Canaanites. So we get to chapter 3 in Zephaniah, verses 1 through 4. And they summarize God's anger to Judah, to Jerusalem. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. Her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. So essentially, if your officials are wolves and your priests are profane and all down the line, Judah is corrupt. They're rebellious. They're oppressive to one another. And they're unresponsive to God's attempts to correct them. Essentially, verses 6 and 7 say, you've seen me destroy unfaithful cities. You've seen me take out people who oppose me. Surely 
you will fear me and change. But no, they will not change. We know that the southern kingdom of Judah goes on. They don't learn their lessons from watching the north and from the continual message of the prophets. They are attacked and conquered by Babylon in 587. Then verses 12 and 13, this is all leading up to our passage. 12 and 13 now refer to the time after the Babylonian captivity when they are restored. God says, I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they should do no injustice and speak no lies. And so now our text starts with the first two verses where God's people are asked to respond, to worship, to sing. Verses 14 and 15, let me read it again. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exalt with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. So God, through Zephaniah, commands his people to sing aloud to rejoice, to exalt with their hearts. Why? Because their time of judgment would be past. God's people had gone through judgment, come out on the other side. And just in the same way, we are guilty. We are deserving of judgment ourselves. But God has both turned away his anger and turned his favor on us, making peace with us. There's a line in one of the Christmas carols, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, that millions of people all over the world sang over the past month, whether they believed it or not. The line is, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. You know the line. You know the song. People love the peace part. People love the idea that we're reconciled, we're good with God. But what does reconciliation imply? It implies conflict, strife, enmity that has been overcome. That there was a time when God and the sinner were not reconciled. That's the part I think that people don't like. But that's an absolute essential part of the gospel message. That human beings are fallen in sin, spiritually dead, so they cannot save themselves. Our fallen condition separates us from God. And if we stay in that fallen, rebellious condition... We have earned and deserve God's punishment and judgment on us. But God reconciles us to himself. And that reconciliation comes through a person, a mediator. And the only possible mediator would have to have a divine nature. 
so that he could bring people up to God. But he would also have to bear humanity's burden and so have a human nature. Jesus Christ was that God-man. That is what the incarnation is about. Bringing us a mediator whose mission was to die in our place. Our sins do not go unpunished. We either pay for them or Jesus takes the punishment of death, bearing our sins on the cross. 1 Corinthians 5.19 says, That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and trusting to us the message of reconciliation. And getting back to the text, verse 15 He takes away the judgment against us, clears away the enemies for us, Satan, sin and death. Then we can be hidden by God. Is the mic cutting in and out? Just me? Okay, good. Maybe you're thinking in your head, okay, yeah, I get some of that, but I wish that God would remove all the enemies from my life. I wish that God would take all of the opposition, all of the people that don't like me, that have a grudge against me. Maybe there's people you work with that you just can't get along with. Maybe you have an ex-spouse who still harbors anger and bitterness to you. Maybe children, grown children who are bitter. Maybe there were people that you burned bridges with and never reconciled. Not to mention people who don't like you because of your politics or your religion or just knowing that there are terrorists out there that hate you. It feels like we have enemies still, and we do. But the fact that God has defeated our spiritual enemies points to the ultimate reality that in heaven we will have no enemies. Have you thought of that? No one to oppose us. No one who would ever scorn us, oppress us. You'll be able to walk anywhere you want in the new heavens and the new earth. And you will have no fear for your safety. You won't even fear that you'll be totally accepted Any relationships here will be healed before then. I look forward to that. I don't know about you. I often cue up music in my car, my office, my my phone, whatever, to match the mood I'm in or the mood I want to be in. Are you like that? I think probably a lot of people do that. If I'm worn out or or feeling just quiet, I'll put on some acoustic, mellow folk music. If I'm heading to the gym to play basketball or lift weights, man, I'm going to get some distorted hard rock to pump me up. You probably like that. Music is such a natural part of our wanting to express ourselves. And there are just times where you have to sing Loud and get excited. 
And if we truly think about how much we have been freed in Christ, we would get excited and emotional in worship. I realize it's Sunday morning when we're singing and, and maybe sometimes we're not too awake, long weeks, decaf coffee, whatever your issue is. But how can we sing, grace has paid for my sin and brought me to life. Grace clothed me with power to do what is right. Grace will lead me to heaven where I'll see your face and never cease to thank you for your grace. How can we sing that with a bored look and monotone voice? I'm not implying that you were today, but it's easy to do. I realize that not everyone likes to sing or doesn't not always love the songs that I choose or they're keyed too high. I don't know, whatever the issue is, but man, let those words sink in. If you don't love to sing, at least read and say the words. God's grace brought me spiritual life paid the eternal debt that I couldn't pay so I get to go to heaven and not hell and I get abundant life here on earth and get to spend eternity with Jesus, that is amazing. I know we're Presbyterians, but I will not rebuke you if you shout or clap or shed a tear of joy. Ah, nice. So as Zephaniah commands, sing aloud. And exalt with all your heart. God has freed you. So now let's look at the rest of the passage, verses 16 through 20. And look at God's actions on our behalf. The idea that God sings to. Verses 16 through 20. On that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not. O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcast. And I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in. At the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Verse 17 repeats what verse 15 said, that God is in your midst. Now, with the prophets, it's tricky sometimes because you're reading them and you're thinking, okay, is he talking about what's happening right then? Is he talking about what's going to happen in 50, 100 years? Is he talking about the time of Christ? Is he talking about the second coming? Is he talking about the new heavens and the new earth? I don't know. And sometimes the text is referring to to several of those things. So we'll see multiple applications and meanings. So 
There are references to on that day in verse 16 and, and at that time in verse 19 and 20. And it, I think that is referring to their literal, physical restoration to the land. But these verses have to point to our spiritual restoration. There's a sense that this is giving the Israelites hope for their return to the land and that God will do all these great things, right? Deal with their oppressors. Gather them in. Restore them. Make them renowned throughout the land. But there's also the spiritual application and really a picture of what the church in the new covenant will look like. And we learn that in here, God rejoices. I want you to think back to my initial question in the sermon. Do you believe that God truly loves you? I want you to let verse 17 wash over you if you have any doubts. The Lord, your God, is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt you over you with loud singing. That is true. 1 John 3, 1 says, See what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. One translation says, The love that the Father has lavished upon us. I look forward to preaching on 1 Corinthians chapter 13 soon. That's coming up in February or March. You are part of the bride of Christ. You are not the bride on your own. The church is Christ's bride, and you are part of it. He loves his people, and he loves you. Rejoicing over you, quieting you, exalting over you. Can you believe it? These are amazing descriptions of a passionate God. He's the father of the lost son who comes running after his son in joy, overjoyed by his love for his child that he thought he had lost was now found. When God looks at you or if you are redeemed in Christ, he doesn't see a sinful, rebellious, dirty sinner, an ingrate. No, he sees you washed and clothed in Christ's righteousness. We sang about that in the last verse of On Christ the Solid Rock. He sees a son or daughter that he has adopted, that he has made new, that he can't help but rejoice in. He bursts out singing loudly. I can't wait to experience that one day. And God not only rejoices, he restores. This, tell, this text tells us that all that is broken, God will fix. He restores the lame. He brings in the outcast. Their names are renowned. Their fortunes are restored. 
Don't think that that's not talking about you. We are the outcasts brought in. At one time when people thought of us, they thought of our shame. But now people will praise us, not for what we've done, but for what God has done in us. This is a picture, a promise to the people of Judah first, that when they returned to the land after exile, what awaited them. It also seems to be a bit of a picture of Jesus' work on earth, right? Healing the lame, restoring the outcast, gathering people into himself. But ultimately, this is the beautiful picture of the redeemed church of God, both here and in heaven. William Brown said, we also await the time when we will be brought to our true home, God's kingdom, and united with all the families of the earth, past, present, and future, to give God praise and glory. As the psalmist proclaimed after a harrowing journey through the the darkest of valleys, and having reached his destination, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Home is a destination as well as a direction. God is our home, and homesick is what we are. You have a whole year ahead of you. You may have great plans. You may be just hoping to grunt through without getting beaten down too much. You may have exciting things. You may have all kinds of resolutions and ideas. You may be in the middle of a lot of years of plotting. But as my good friend Mark Rist always says, you never know what a day may bring. And you never know what a year might bring. James chapter 4 reminds us, come now, you who say, today Or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town, spend a year there, trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. If the Lord wills. The Bible proclaims that the mercies of the Lord are new every morning. And elsewhere that he will work out his purposes. But how might you live 2018 differently? Knowing that God loves you with an indescribable love. Could that change you Could that change how you relate to other people? The fact that God is wild about you, that he rejoices over you, sings over you. Could you stop striving so hard to get people to love you, to win people's approval? Because you know that your heavenly father loves you desperately and unconditionally. Could his love pour out of you onto the people around you, both to the people who know you and can love you back and those that don't know you and probably won't return that love? 
Can you sing loudly with a grateful heart? Because you know how much God has done for you. This truth should change us. It should affect us. It should infuse us with confidence and compassionate love and obedience. We're going to close with a song whose tune, uh, we did this last year. I think church was on New Year's Day last year since it's New Year's Eve. This is the tune that you'll probably sing tonight or hear, Auld Lang Syne. But a man named Dustin Kensrew took that tune, added new words to it, and called it, All Glory Be to Christ. Here are some of the words. When on the day the great I am, the faithful and the true, the lamb who was for sinners slain is making all things new. Behold, our God shall live with us and be our steadfast love, and we shall ever his people be. All glory be to Christ. His rule and reign will ever sing. All glory be to Christ. And all those who know that God will live with us and be our steadfast love said, Amen. Let's take a minute and pray, asking the Lord for his direction and his love. Almighty God, thank you for your word that is life. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Amen.